We are in Luke chapter 18 today. <clears throat> I think I just went through puberty there for a minute. If you can hear it. Uh, Luke chapter 18, so go there in your Bibles. I'm trying to get there as well. There we go. Okay. Um, and as you're going there, I just want to tell you about something. There is this, there's this interaction between Jesus and and the disciples that's recorded in the Gospel of John um, that's always really kind of moved me. It's one of those interactions where it doesn't matter how many times I see it, it just hits me in a, a certain way. And what's going on is there's this large crowd of people that have been following Jesus, and they consider themselves disciples of Jesus. And then Jesus starts to say some really strange things to them, um, Things that at the time, there's no way they could have understood or made sense out of. One of them is this. In John 6, 54, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. And, and since I didn't realize that Jesus is pointing to the sacrifice he's going to make, and he's, he's pointing to the Lord's Supper, uh, many of those following Jesus were, were so bothered by these words of his, and, and they weren't trusting Jesus, Right? Uh, and, and so they turn away and, and they leave and, and decide we will no longer follow Jesus. He's too nuts. And, and Jesus at this point turns to the 12 disciples and he asks this question, do you want to go away as well? Because Jesus is, is asking this question because he, he wants to know, am, am I still worth following to, to you? Are you going to continue to trust me, even if you don't understand these words perfect? Or, or, or do you want to, to be like them? Are you going to be like them and quit and walk away? At any point in your life, have you questioned whether Jesus is worth following? I mean, sure, we, we want grace, right? But, but, but do we want a new way of life that sprouts up from receiving God's grace and the Holy Spirit into our lives? Is it, is it worth the commitment that we, we, we now have to, to learn and obey the commandments of God in the Scriptures? Is it, is it worth it uh, having to tell the truth when a simple lie could get you out of punishment or uh, out of a, some project you didn't turn in or anything of that nature? Is it, is it worth not being able to pursue some pleasures that your peers pursue without any sense of guilt or question? Is it, is it worth the sacrifices you make, whether financial in terms of supporting the church or relationally in terms of not being able to pursue a, a romantic relationship with an unbeliever you care for? These are just some examples, but is it worth it? Is it worth it laying down some aspect of, of your own autonomy to follow the Lord? Every difficult obedience in your life may be a temptation towards you to ask that question. Is Jesus really worth following? That's the question behind the statement that Peter makes in the passage we're about to read here in just a second. Uh, and just so you know, we've got two passages today, two sections. We're going to read them each as we get to them. Uh, the first one is in verse 28 of Luke 18, and I want you to, to follow that, uh, or go there and, and follow along as I read. And it, and it picks up just after Jesus' interaction with the rich man, in case you need a little bit of a reminder from last week. Uh, the rich man who walks away because he chooses his wealth over Jesus. Uh, so here, let's, uh, let's read, follow along. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Holy One of Israel, and you care for us. Oh, what a wonderful and wondrous reality that is. And so please clear away all distractions today, enlighten our minds to both understand and to receive your word today. May we leave this building today with a greater love for and a greater sense of all towards you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so I can't use actual examples because my son is actually running the sound today and he'll just mute me. Uh, but every so often, one of our children will do something really selfish. Maybe it's just our children. Uh, and as they're doing it, Laura and I will be upset and we'll say something back to them like, you have more chicken nuggets than you can possibly eat and you won't share two with him? Uh, something, you know, that's kind of outrageous that way. Uh, and, and whenever child's not involved, right, the third one, the innocent one, uh, in, in this situation is going to chime in with this joyous, joyous, self-righteous declaration of success. I gave him two of my nuggets. I shared, right? I'm not involved in this, but I want you to make sure I know that, right? And, and the unspoken statement right there when that happens is this, mom, dad, I just, I want you to know you have one lovely, wonderful child, and I am that child. It's me. Uh, and so please feel free to shower me with praise or a bowl of ice cream as reward maybe, something of that nature. The Apostle Peter in this situation is that third child. Th that's what's happening here. He, he, he's just watched this rich man who's unwilling to sell his possessions and follow Jesus. And, and, he, and he looks and he can see Jesus' saddened face as he grieves this guy walking away from the most important thing in his life. And, and that's the moment when he says, see we have left our homes and followed you. But Peter wants to be sure that, that Jesus sees that unlike the rich man, we've given everything to follow you, Jesus. And they did. I mean, they really did. I mean, it might not seem much to you, but way, way back in Luke 5, 11, we, we read this. And, and when they, and, and this is the first disciples, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. P Peter Peter wants to know then, what, what, what has this sacrifice gained us? What, what's the reward for this? And it's just implied in our passage. I, I don't want you to think I'm just making stuff up here. Um, it's the, the same interaction is recorded in Matthew 19.27. And, and in that instance where it's recorded, Peter follows up this declaration uh, of having left everything to follow Jesus by asking this question. He says, what will we have? Uh, what will we have? What then will we have? I can't read. Uh, what then will we have? He's the child again, wanting to know, is, is this sacrifice, do we get ice cream? What wonderful thing is the reward for this? And, and, and in our house, if, we're on, if I'm honest, and because my kids will wrap me out, we usually snap at the third child. We're, we'll say something like, this, this isn't about you. Stop being so righteous. You know, one of those great parenting moments of encouragement. Um, but I hear this and I think, oh, Jesus is going to lay it down on Peter. You self-righteous you know, I don't know, uh, but that's how I expect, but that's not what he, what he does here. It's, it's, it's not. Jesus responds instead by, by encouraging Peter with a beautiful promise of what they will receive. Don't expect this, kids. Uh, and he's doing this in response, right, that, that because of in response to all that you've lost and all that, that you have lost as a result of following Christ with God-given faith, you know, he's going to tell them this, this is wonderful things for you. L look at verse 29. He says, truly, I, I say to you, literally y'all there, 
uh, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children, and notice this qualifier, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In, in, in other words, despite the, the high cost of following me, the investment is absolutely worth it. Being a, a Christian means that by grace through faith, we have decided to follow Jesus instead of anything or anyone else. And it, and it means that we find rest not in our performance, not in our successes, but we find rest uh, uh, or even the praises of others, but we find rest in the Lord Jesus himself and all that he has done for us. Any of you familiar with the, the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus? Anyone? I have decided. Okay, a few of you. Um, I, I thought that song was from the 1990s. Anyone with me on that? Uh, yeah, Emily? Uh, but it was written in Wales over 150 years ago. That's how old that song is. And to be honest, I have a really weird relationship with the song because on one level, I really hate the song. It bothers me uh, for obvious Calvinist reasons, right? It, it focuses on what I, the singer, have decided to do, uh, and it neglects to mention the work of God that must be done in my heart if, if there's any chance of me, right, as really the only reason I would ever choose to follow God or Christ. And, and so I, I just want to take the song and throw the whole thing out and and yet every time I hear it, I kind of feel drawn in. And, and, and it's really bothered me for over years because it, it just it evokes this strong sense of commitment to our new life in Christ. Uh, and, and it does it because of the way every single stanza ends with, uh, with, with that line, no turning back, no turning back. And you kind of feel that powerful thing, right? You, you sing the next one, though, though no one go with me, I still will follow no turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no, no turning back, no turning back. And I kind of want to just march off somewhere when I hear this. Um, and yet in the back of my head, I'm like, no, throw it out. Uh, the, the song just captures this very real sense that true discipleship of Jesus is not all sunshine and lollipops and rainbows. It's, it's not always easy. It's not always popular. It's often costly. It's emotionally painful at times. And, and Jesus is acknowledging that, right, the costliness in his response to Peter here. And, and don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here, though, because you could read this in verse 39 and think it's like, I need to leave my family. Right? That's the investment. Family, I'm gone. Good luck. Uh, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not encouraging you to abandon your families. What Jesus is doing is acknowledging that following Jesus calls us to reorder our priorities, and that might result in loss of relationship with these families, these closest relationships. Now, I, I've told you before about my friend who was converted in, in college from Islam uh, to Christianity, and the rest of us are like, that is a crazy high cost because his whole family disowned him. They wouldn't pay his tuition. He wasn't welcome back at the family home uh, when Christmas break came along. Um, tr trusting in Jesus literally cost him the, the very people that he loved most in his life. And, and I'll tell you today, he's still walking with the Lord because he's known the Lord to be worth it, absolutely. Now, for others, uh, for some, the loss of Jesus is, is acknowledging, uh, 
It looks like, you know, leaving home to, to minister in a faraway land. We, we think of missionaries and others uh, that way. Uh, that's what it meant for Peter and the apostles, right? Leave my family behind because we're going with Jesus physically to follow. Uh, for others, the loss is more nuanced. For most of us, that's the way it's going to be. It's this weird rift between mother and daughter. It's this weird rift between brothers and, and family in that regard because they don't understand your love for Jesus and they don't understand your love for the church. And so it's just weird and they don't know what to do with you, uh, particularly at holidays probably. So anyway, is it worth it? That's the overarching question. Is it worth not being able to afford your dream house or to eat out as often as you like because a percentage of your income is going to, to, uh, to the Lord and supporting your church or missionary work? Is it worth whatever experiences you might be missing out on because you're committed to Sunday morning worship with your covenant community or because you're, you're going to a small group or RUF or, or a crew gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it worth that? Is it worth, you know, not watching whatever show is being binged and, and publicly praised um, because you're not going to overlook the filth in it and, and, and watch it anyway? Is it knowing it's not good for your soul? Is it, is it worth these kinds of things that come from following Jesus? Is it worth the reputation you're going to have as a result of being a Christian in your department, in your battalion, in your dorm rooms, in your profession, wherever it might be, simply because you're identified as a Christian and people have ideas about what that means? Many will say that Jesus is a good long-term investment, right? Um, but not a good short-term investment, by, by which I mean this. Um, that you might think, yeah, um, Jesus, you, you might expect then that Jesus is going to respond here and say something along the lines of, you know, all this sacrifice, all this suffering, uh, it, it is worth it eternally speaking. Just endure it because eternity is going to be wonderful, even if this life is kind of pathetic for you. Uh, and, and you think that's what Jesus is going to say, and he is going to say that eventually, but that's not where he starts. Verse 29, right, again, look back at it again. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parent or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more, what's it say, in this time. Now, following Jesus is worth it here and now, not just at the end of your life. Uh, Christian, though you may lose these precious relationships and no longer be welcome in your family's home, still in Christ you receive an eternal family where you are always welcome. You are welcome in many more homes, and that's Jesus' point here, right, of your fellow Christians. In, in, in Christ, you might obtain or keep your family, and that's a wonderful thing. Hopefully, that's the case. But, but, but either way, you are certainly going to gain older Christians who are going to be like fathers and mothers to you. Or, or you're going to gain younger Christians who are like children to you, right? These extended family. You, you may be thinking, but that's not how I experience the church. And, and that might be so, since too often we, uh, we approach church as though it was a, a company that offered some sort of services to us, right? I, I, I can't tell you how many times uh, people have come and, and visited, and after the service, they'll ask something along the lines of like, uh, so, so what do you offer for children? What do you offer for youth? What do you have for single parents? What do you have? And there's and then all these really nuanced little things, and, and it doesn't make me mad. They're honest questions, but it makes me sad sometimes because... At the heart, that's a consumer question. What do you have to offer me? And I just think a better question, you know, when many of you move on to other places and other towns, and when you get to that point, let me remind you of this question from Timothy Whitmer, who suggests when you're looking for a church, provided that they are biblically and theologically solid, ask this, is this a good place for me to serve and where I can grow as a believer? Is this a good place for that? 
And then all you got to do is let your walls down, let yourself be known, let yourself be challenged and corrected and encouraged by those who love you. Listen, following Jesus is worth it, for, for Jesus gives us a, a great blessing in this life now. He is also worth it eternally speaking, right? You, you look at the end of verse 30, he, he also mentions that. Uh, we receive in this life now, right, uh, many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. If we lose things precious to us, people precious to us in, in this life because of our following Jesus, we can be confident Still, it was worth it. And as Philip Ryken says, he says, This is not because our sacrifices merit anything, but when by the grace of God we leave everything else behind to follow Jesus, we get Jesus now and Jesus later, Jesus forever. And, and forever is a big part of this, right? That's, that, that's, that's a part of what makes eternity just so wonderful, right? Even the best things in this life are kind of dampered by the fact that you know they're going to come to an end. They won't last forever. The lakeside vacation will come to an end. The enjoyment of being young is going to end as you age and grow up. You know, for parents, children grow up and leave home for college or for career. But in eternity, there will be no tears. There'll be no injustice, no aging, no sin, no death. Things do not end. The wonderfulness of being with the Lord goes on forever and ever. See, our bodies will be glorified, our souls will be purified, and our worship will be multiplied forever and ever. So I don't have a good transition, but we're going to the next section here. It uh, begins in verse 31, uh, because the Lord has another teaching for us today, and, and beginning in verse 31, and reads to the end of that paragraph there. Uh, just listen as I read. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Uh, Jesus has told the disciples about his death and resurrection in vague ways in the past. We've seen it a few times, Luke 9, a little more specific. But we find the closer he actually gets to Jerusalem, the more specific he speaks, giving them much more detail. This one's about clear as day. Um, he tells them it's, it's, it's in Jerusalem where everything's going to be accomplished that, that we read about, that we know about, that was predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament. And, and that's significant because Jesus here, you, did you notice this, he doesn't view the cross like this tragic event. He doesn't uh, view the cross like this some accident of, wow, I can't believe this happened. Uh, instead, he sees it as simply a fulfillment of prophecy. This is what happens because the Lord ordains that this is the way it is to happen. And it's significant then that, that Jesus says here in verse 32 that he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles, right? We think, well, that's just fact. That's who they are, right? That's who he's going to be delivered to. But, but you've got to remember that in the Old Testament, Israel, right, who is the people of God at this time, hands over or handed over to the Gentile nations because of their sin. There's a, a judgment on that, right? And, and now Jesus is to be handed over to the Gentiles for the sin of God's people on our behalf. And so there's something really 
wonderful going on in that statement. Uh, furthermore, everything that Jesus says here is from Old Testament prophecies. Uh, mocked and shamefully treated, that's from Psalm 22. The flogging and the spitting uh, are prophecies from Isaiah 50. His death as a sacrifice for sinners is seen in Isaiah 53. Uh, everything spoken of in the Old Testament is revealed here by Jesus comes true. We know that, right? Because we're on the other side of the cross. And so we know that everything here comes true. And, and while Jesus doesn't find joy in being mocked, the process of that, or the joy in being crucified, uh, you wouldn't expect him to. He doesn't. He does consider God's elect worth the sacrifice here. So, such that every day that Jesus moves closer to Jerusalem, closer to the cross, he, he never turns back. He never goes away. He never says, just forget it. These people are the worst. Um, he keeps going to the cross. For, for Jesus, it was worth keeping the law for you. It was worth the crucifixion. It was worth being forsaken. He, he endured to the end, and, and then he rose from the dead, and now he reigns forever as he prepares a place for you and I to dwell with him for all of eternity. It sounds too wonderful, but it's reality. And, and the surprise here is in verse 34, isn't it? But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. It's like when I'm looking in the refrigerator for something. It doesn't matter what I'm looking for. Uh, ketchup, leftovers, a medium-sized llama, maybe. Uh, it can be right in front of me, and I somehow don't see it, and uh, I can't find it. It's there, and I find that out, uh, you know, after I tell Laura, it's not in the fridge, it's not here. And she gets all high and mighty and points out to me, oh, there it is, at eye level, right in front of you, right, right where I said it would be. And, and in these moments, all I can think is, that's a neat little magic trick you did there. I don't know how you made it appear, but you did. Um, so here are the apostles. They're, they're listening to Jesus tell them all these details about his death and his resurrection and, and they can't grasp it, right? They, they, they don't see it. They don't understand it. It's, it's plain as day, but they are absolutely blind as bats in that moment. It was absolutely hidden from them. In this moment, their, their faith in Jesus is, is weak. Now, I, I don't say that as a criticism in this situation. I really don't. It's, it's weak because they haven't been given eyes to see, or in this case, a mind to understand the very words that just came out of Jesus' mouth. Uh, that is going to change in their life. As you keep reading, you'll see it in, uh, at the end of, this, this, of Luke. You'll see it in the book of Acts, right? That, uh, that this weak becomes very strong faith after Jesus is resurrected and spends time with the Gentiles and encourages them. Uh, they become incredibly strong, right? Tradition, not scripture, though, tells us what 11 out of the 12 end up being killed for their faith, martyred. Uh, People today still at times struggle to have strong faith. We, we struggle, struggle to grasp and believe God's word. Uh, if you haven't run into that yet, don't be surprised if it happens to you someday. Um, and, and when that happens, when our faith is weak, we may struggle to believe simple things. Like doctrinally speaking, it might be hard to believe something as easy as God is good. Maybe some stra tragedy has struck your life. Maybe you, you've seen some injustice. Maybe you just feel depressed for reasons you don't even understand. And, and in that moment, it, it, what, what was so easy to believe about God suddenly becomes very difficult to believe. And so what changed? It's not God. God continues to be good even if we don't believe it to be so. Has God's word changed? 
It's not his word that's changed. God's word is constant. It reveals what it's always revealed, including that, that, that God is good. In fact, the disciples would have read this afterwards, right? And be like, oh yeah, I remember that. That makes sense. But they didn't at the time. So, so what changed? I mean, certainly we can say culture changed, but, but maybe it's also us who has changed. Maybe our faith has become weak. And it's not just true in doctrinal issues. That's just one example. It's true with God's instruction regarding how we are to live, and, and we know that. And I'll say this, when, when people wander away from the faith, or, you know, when their faith is, is weakening or becoming weak or is weak, one of the first signs is this rejection of biblical morals, both in belief and practice. That's how you see it. And I know we can dig into that theologically. What are we talking about here? Would they ever believe it? That kind of stuff. Don't even worry about that right now, though. Um, this is the observation. When you see them weakening, that's one of the first areas to go is morals. This is often uh, accompanied then by a neglect in God's word. You see, when we, when we don't read the Psalms, when we don't soak up Ephesians, when we no longer seek to know God through his word, we become more influenced by the philosophies of man, all over the board philosophies of man, and, and, and new and novel ideas, right? And it feels like this expansion of the mind, this is something new, it's progress, it's something wonderful, but, but, but don't forget what we were calling COVID-19 six months ago, anyone remember it? It was called the, the novel coronavirus, you know what novel means? New, right? This, this is new. This is interesting. Not, not everything that's new is healthy and good for us. And, and so if you struggle to, to grasp God's word, if you struggle to believe God's word, don't give up trying. Don't give up seeking the Lord in his word. Christian, doubts are not rare, like, but like any other temptations, they, when they come into your life, do not run from God in this moment. Do not run from his word. Do not walk away from prayer. Run to God in his word. And it, it might be a slow road back. Don't expect these things to be instant, right? Like you, you break your arm and you get a cast on it. They take it off. You've got like noodle arm strength at that point. Uh, it's pretty much worthless at first, but, but you must keep exercising that arm and slowly the strength will come by, come back. Exercise your faith in the Holy Spirit. And that, that means you, you keep coming to worship, you keep sitting under the preaching of the word, you, you keep finding time in your day to read the scriptures and pray to God, even if you don't want to, <clears throat> asking for renewed and strengthened faith to, to grasp the word, to understand the word, to trust God and his word. The other significant way our faith may be weakened is when we fall out of fellowship with other believers or, or when we find that we're only associating with, with other believers who are just narrowly in line with everything else in our, our, our life in every other way. And, and, and you need to be encouraged, you do, and, and challenged by others. And I don't just mean other people in general. What, what I mean is other Christians Others that might understand your doubts, but will hear your doubts, will hear your questions, and, and encourage you to the Lord and challenge you in that way. The church of, of Christ is your everlasting family, and so let yourself be known. Let yourself ask for help. Share life with other people. And in church, we, we do that too little. And maybe you're, you're thinking right now, I don't know if I want the church as my everlasting family because I'm not even sure I want to be Facebook friends with some of these people. 
It's that view right there which pastorally has me concerned right now. And it's not just our church, it's everywhere, but it has me concerned right now because it's not hard to see playing out in real life what C.S. Lewis's fictional demon screw tape may have written to his nephew Wormwood. I mean, can you hear it? Dear Wormwood, use a four-inch piece of cloth to drive a wedge between the children of God. They'll never suspect it, and this will make them angry or afraid, and so they won't speak to each other. Make them doubt that their unity is in Christ. Aim to make them more concerned about political issues than learning to live with the highest priorities of love for God and a love for their neighbor Signed, and this is how he always signs them in the books, your increasingly and ravenously affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Church, we need to turn away from the endless stream of anxiety and fear that's found on CNN and Fox News, in, in the pages of New York Times, and in the audio of niche podcasts produced by people that don't know you and you don't know. Instead of Instead, turn towards the Holy Scriptures and turn towards the covenant community that God has given you. Our elders have brought back small groups in the hopes that we will sit down across from each other face to face and remember we are a covenant family. Remember that while we might have varying degrees of differences in political views, we, we may have different opinions about the effectiveness of the mask or the government mandating the mask or, or, or others' refusal to wear the mask. We might have a million different differences in so many areas, but one thing I am absolutely certain about, and you need to be absolutely certain about as well, that we have in common is this, that every single one of us is a sinner, desperately in need of a Savior. We all have that in common. And we all have a, a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ who loves those who are His. Our, our union with Christ invariably implies we are also united to one another. Some of you just need a reminder of that. So brother, sister, for the good of your soul and the glory of God, can, can you choose to love your covenant family? Can you lay down your rights and your frustrations, your anger, your anxieties, your, your judgment of others on both directions for the sake of the covenant community? Can we do that? What, what, what I mean is consider this. Where's your heart at in all this? Where's your heart at? Because I have to check mine a few times a week that I turn into selfish. It's all about me. Which in a way brings us back to the original question, right? Is Jesus worth it? You remember at the start, the story from John 6, I, I told you, uh, the, the crowd decides Jesus is not worth it and they just walk away. I'm done with this. It's the worst thing they ever did. Worst thing they ever did. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he asks, do you want to go away as well? And and like I said last week, I think it was, it, it's always Peter who chimes in, right, in the southern sense, bless, bless your heart, Peter. Um, but in this case, these, these are the words that always hit me, is, is, is Peter, he says, listen to what Peter says, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Not much affects me emotionally, but that, that does. 
Not only is, is Jesus worth it, he, he's the only one who's worth it. Whatever it, it costs you to follow Jesus in this life, I, I want you to know that, that he's worth it. Now, I don't usually go off my notes, so I might regret this in a moment. But if you will, turn to Matthew 10. I hope it's Matthew 10. I'm going to look like an idiot. I need someone to Google it for me. I, I just want to point this out. I, I remember when I saw this not long ago, I thought it was kind of amazing. In Matthew 10, it's one of these boring things when you're reading, you just skip right over. In verse 2, you see the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, right? You don't want to be Judas in this list because his explanation is not good. Do you notice two of those people have, have a label? Do you see what it is, who they are? Who is it? Matthew, what, what is Matthew? And, and Simon, do you know, what is Simon? And it seems like such a dumb little detail, except the beauty of the Lord putting it there for us is, is this. The tax collector and the zealot were, zealot were about as far away from each other, politically speaking, as they could possibly be. The tax collector is, is a ban- like a traitor against his nation, and, 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 and yet Jesus calls him into faith, right? And, and the zealot is, is so gung-ho, Israel, we should probably kill all the tax collectors because they're traitors. Like, these are these mindsets. They are so far divided that they would look at Republicans and Democrats and everything in between or beyond uh, in our world today and be like, that's, that's no big deal. We got, look at the zealot. Um, and, and it's just this idea that here are these two guys that are in such different view and they find their unity, they find their hope, they find their salvation in, in Christ and the gospel and they have to walk together and work together. And that's not to say they didn't discuss things. That's not to say the ideas they have don't matter. And that's not, don't think I'm equating this to say political ideas don't matter. But I am saying they do not matter as much as Christ. They do not matter as much as your commitment to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It does not matter as much as, as your covenant community. And, and so keep that view in mind and and by all means let's let's have conversations and discuss these things but never without leaving this this central ground that that Christ is our center union where all of our hope and our 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 faith needs to be well if that's weird let's let's close in prayer father thank you for sending Jesus Jesus thank you for going to Jerusalem thank you for the cross for the empty tomb. Holy Spirit, thank you for applying the sacrifice of Jesus to our souls through faith, which you give. Lord, make us to trust you, to trust whatever loss we experience in this life for the sake of the kingdom is worth it because you are worth it. And Lord, give us unity in Christ that glorifies you and and strengthens this body. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.